I went dancing the night before in a black velvet Paris gown on one of those evenings that was the glamour of New York epitomized. I was blissfully asleep at 3 a.m. 24 hours later, I lay, dying, my fingers and legs darkening with gangrene. That was how it began, almost discreetly. I felt drained. My legs were slightly numb. Dr. Root was informed about the vomiting, the diarrhea, the plummeting blood pressure. By then, a faint rash was also beginning to stipple my body. This is the story of how, almost miraculously and with brilliant care, I survived and prevailed over that grisly and still mysterious disease. This quote is from a New York Times article titled, Toxic Shock, a patient's personal account of her experience with the disease. Today, our patient has toxic shock syndrome, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Intern at Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, A Shock to the System. Time for a minute physiology. Toxic shock syndrome, or TSS, is characterized by an invasive infection resulting in shock and multi-system organ failure, caused most commonly by group A streptococcus, although it can occur in group B, C, and G strep, or staphylococcus aureus. It can also be caused by Clostridium cerdeli. Both Staphylococcus and Group A strep produce exotoxins, which are known to have a superantigen effect. This is responsible for the immune-mediated process driving TSS. Normally, antigens are taken up, processed, and a fragment of the antigen is displayed on the major histocompatibility complex class II (MHC2) molecule of an antigen-presenting cell. T lymphocytes bind MHC2 via using antigen-specific receptors, generating the targeted response we expect from the adaptive immune system. Because superantigens stimulate MHC2 directly without antigen processing, this causes widespread non-specific T-cell activation. To put it in perspective, normally 0.01% of T-cells are activated. Superantigens activate up to 20% of T-cells. This mass activation results in a cytokine surge driving the overall shock picture. Common causes of toxic shock syndrome include skin and soft tissue sources, surgical and postpartum wound infections, or, for Staphylococcus aureus in particular, retained foreign bodies like tampons or nasal packing. Less common, strep toxic shock syndrome can be from a respiratory source. Clostridium cerdeli infections can enter the uterus and cause TSS during normal menstruation, childbirth, or gynecological procedures. Both entities have specific diagnostic criteria. Broadly, criteria include fever, hypotension, rash, and evidence of multi-system organ involvement. Confirmation of a diagnosis of streptococcal TSS specifically requires isolation of group A streptococcus from a sterile or non-sterile site. Confirmation of staphylococcal TSS does not require isolation of staph aureus, likely reflecting the fact that blood cultures are positive only 5% of the time in staph TSS and 60% of the time in streptococcal TSS. There are more detailed components to the diagnostic criteria, so make sure you refer to our blog post and infographic for more details. As always, make sure to assess your patient's ABCs, obtain IV access, and if required, put them on cardiac monitoring. 
In TSS, hemodynamic instability is extremely common, and patients can rapidly deteriorate to septic shock. 50% of patients present normotensive, but become hypotensive within four hours. Start fluid resuscitation and have a low threshold for getting the ICU or step-down team involved. Streptococcal TSS is associated with a 30-72% to mortality rate. While staph TSS is associated with a 5-15% to mortality rate, it can be hard to distinguish what the causative organism is during your initial assessment, so early recognition and intervention is key. Once your patient is stable, you can move forward with your assessment. On history and physical exam, your objectives should be to 1. Identify the source of infection, and 2. Identify consequences from the disease process, and 3. Consider alternate diagnoses. When looking for a source, you want to find out if there is any preceding skin and soft tissue trauma or recent surgeries. Inquire about tampon use and last menstrual period. Ask about any localizing infectious symptoms, paying particular attention to any new skin rashes and symptoms suggestive of cellulitis, or deeper infection including necrotizing fasciitis. Necrotizing fasciitis presents as a rapidly progressing soft tissue infection with pain out of proportion, wooden hard induration to the subcutaneous tissues, crepitus, boule, or obvious skin necrosis. If features of TSS are present in the context of a skin and soft tissue infection, necrotizing fasciitis must be considered in every patient. Ask questions to identify multi-system organ involvement, presence of mucous membrane involvement including a strawberry tongue, more pronounced altered mental status, and gastrointestinal symptoms favor a diagnosis of staphylococcal TSS. Diarrhea can actually be an early finding, in fact, it is often misdiagnosed as gastroenteritis or influenza. Symptoms of significant dyspnea may be suggestive of ARDS, a complication associated with streptococcal TSS. Ask about bleeding symptoms such as petechiae, early bruising, and mucosal bleeding that could indicate thrombocytopenia or DIC. There is a fairly broad differential diagnosis for a patient presenting with fever, hemodynamic instability, and possible multi-system organ involvement, which can be divided into infectious and non-infectious etiologies. Sepsis of any cause can result in this presentation, so screen for other focal infectious symptoms. For example, gram-negative septic shock, usually from a GI or GU source, can generate a very similar clinical picture. Meningococcemia should always be considered in your differential diagnosis, as they may initially present nonspecifically with fever, confusion, and myalgias, but rapidly deteriorate and develop obvious meningismus, decreased LOC, purpura, and shock. Prominent MSK symptoms, specifically migratory polyarthralgias, tensosynovitis in a sexually active patient with fever and pustular rash, should prompt consideration of disseminated gonococcal infection. Relevant exposure history should suggest alternate diagnoses like leptospirosis, Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever, RMSF, or other tick-borne illnesses. Palmar plantar rash involvement is highly characteristic for Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever. Make sure to take a travel history as typhoid, paratyphoid fever, malaria, dengue fever, and other viral hemorrhagic fevers can have a similar presentation. Relative bradycardia and normal or low white blood cell counts are suggestive of typhoid or paratyphoid fever. Always consider non-infectious causes as well, as many of them are life-threatening if not identified. 
Vascular causes include things like a pulmonary embolism. Endocrine causes like adrenal insufficiency can present similarly, and in fact can be a complication of toxic shock syndrome via adrenal hemorrhage. This is called waterhouse friedrichsen syndrome. Ask about new medications that could indicate complex drug reactions like anaphylaxis, DRESS, and SGS-TEN. TTP is an uncommon but serious immune-mediated response to think about if there is blood work consistent with microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and or presence of schistocytes on the blood smear. On physical exam, patients with TSS are commonly hypotensive and tachycardic. Hypoxia may indicate development of ARDS. Assess your patient's mental status, because altered mental status can often be out of proportion to the amount of hypotension. Examine for any evidence of meningismus if there is a suspicion of meningitis. Examine mucous membranes for hyperemia, skin for jaundice, mottling or rashes, as both can be associated with an erythematous macular rash. However, Staphylococcus aureus tends to have a sunburn-looking rash with desquamation. Conjunctival suffusion, which is erythema without exudate, with or without hemorrhage, and associated swelling along the palpebral fissures are highly characteristic of leptospirosis. Look for any trauma or cellulitis that could have served as a source for TSS. If there is cellulitis, check for intact neurovascular status and assess for any boule, crepitus, or pain out of proportion to clinical findings. Also, look for evidence of petechiae or purpura suggestive of DIC. If there are any concerns about Staphylococcus TSS in a menstruating female, a speculum and pelvic exam may be required to ensure that there are no retained foreign bodies and no adnexal or cervical motion tenderness to suggest pelvic inflammatory disease as a potential cause. The purpose of these lab investigations is to identify whether this patient meets criteria for toxic shock syndrome and rule out other diagnoses. You should order a CBC with a peripheral smear looking for a leukocytosis, thrombocytopenia, and schistocytes. Also order electrolytes and creatinine, which can show AKI, often preceding shock, CK, liver enzymes and liver function tests, bilirubin, VBG, lactate, and screen for DIC using an INR, PTT, and fibrinogen. LDH, reticulocyte count, and haptoglobin can be ordered if suspecting TTP. Two sets of blood cultures should be obtained prior to the initiation of antibiotics. If there is an open wound amenable to swab, a deep wound swab can be obtained. Urine culture should be obtained if the patient is symptomatic and your clinical suspicion for TSS is lower. Also obtain a chest x-ray and ECG, particularly if there are respiratory symptoms or unexplained hypoxia. If there is a relevant exposure or travel history or presence of physical exam findings, that should guide additional investigations to rule out other items on your differential diagnosis. Once again, assess your patient's ABCs, IV access, O2, and monitors. Start fluid resuscitation if there is any evidence of hemodynamic instability. Patients should be put on contact and droplet precautions until 24 hours of antibiotics have been administered. If you are strongly considering a diagnosis of TSS, make sure to involve the necessary consultants, including ICU and infectious diseases. If there is any concern of necrotizing fasciitis, have a very low threshold to call the appropriate surgical service. In the same vein, any potential source should be removed, including things like nasal packing or tampons. Start empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics. Remember to adjust dosing for renal function and check if your patient has any serious allergies to the following antibiotics. 
piperacillin tazobactam 4.5 grams IV Q6 hours, vancomycin 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram IV Q12 hours, and clindamycin 900 milligrams IV Q8 hours. Clindamycin should be continued for 48 to 72 hours after the patient demonstrates hemodynamic stability and clinical improvement. IVIG should be initiated if you are suspecting streptococcus TSS at 1 gram per kilogram on day 1 and 0.5 grams per kilogram on day 2 and day 3. IVIG works by neutralizing exotoxins, improving opsonization and phagocytosis of bacteria, and inhibiting the production of cytokines that drive TSS. As always, narrow your antibiotic spectrum based on culture results. If there are cultures demonstrating group A strep bacteremia, penicillin can be utilized. If positive for staph aureus, cloxacillin or vancomycin can be used, depending on if it is MSSA or MRSA. Ensure exposed contacts receive antibiotic prophylaxis to minimize risk of developing invasive group A strep infection after exposure. These are individuals who have had close contact with the infected patient seven days prior to symptom onset or up to 24 hours after starting antibiotics. What constitutes as close? This includes any of the following. Household contacts spending over four hours a day together or 20 hours per week. Sharing the same bed or having a sexual encounter with the infected person. Direct mucous membrane contact with oral or nasal secretions or unprotected direct contact with an open skin lesion on the infected patient. Shared needles or selected hospital or long-term care contacts. A 10-day course of cephalexin is used for chemoprophylaxis. Clindamycin plays several roles in the treatment of toxic shock syndrome. Beta-lactam antibiotics like penicillin work by inhibiting cell wall synthesis, but depend on active replication to do this. During the log phase, the period of high levels of replication, penicillin is very effective. But as organism concentrations increase, the rate of replication slows down because of limited available resources, i.e. the lag phase, meaning less penicillin binding protein is expressed. Because clindamycin acts ribosomally, it is not affected by stage of growth and can decrease bacterial burden so that the remaining bacteria can go back into the log phase, where penicillin is effective. Clindamycin also directly reduces toxin synthesis, modulates cytokine production, and has a longer post-antibiotic effect. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, A Shock to the System. This episode was written by Dr. Jose Said, Internal Medicine, and reviewed by Dr. Tim O'Shea, Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Leslie Martin, General Internal Medicine. The Internetwork series was created by Allison Lai, developed by Zara Morelli and Leah Karnopoulos. This podcast was produced and recorded by Zara Morelli. Music production by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Please also go to our website, www.theinternetwork, for an associated toxic shock syndrome infographic and blog post. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.